At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You may be into punk rock, soft rock, or classic rock, R&B, hip-hop, or house, country, techno, or techno-country. But no matter what kind of music you listen to, here's something else you should hear. Please consider getting vaccinated. Talk to your pharmacist today about Comirnaty, COVID-19 vaccine mRNA. This message brought to you by BioNTech and Pfizer. Welcome back to the Cosmology and Science Podcast. And in this episode, we have a great conversation with the author of the book we've been talking about many times, Chris Brown. And we have a, it's a wide-ranging conversation and it's also an introduction to many of these fundamental themes and topics about the expanding universe, about the gravitational redshift, and also about cosmology and science and discovery in a wider sense. So thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to this conversation we're going to have now with Chris Brown. So he is the author of the book we've been talking about in a couple of episodes, Astrophysics, for people who think that physicists are full of shift and a pun on the red shift. And uh, we now have with us Chris Brown. So welcome to the show, Chris. Hello, Aleph. How are you today? Uh, it's a good day. This is, it's a bit yeah. late here. So I'm in England. You're in, <laughs> you're in Georgia. So, uh, has the sunset? Yeah. Yeah, it has. Yeah. It's dark now. Unfortunately, it's cloudy again, so I can't look at the stars. So we're also in this oh, process yeah. of mapping out the, <laughs> the night sky with all the constellations. We have oh, one of my wonder. favorites now is just straight to the west, which is that side of the window, is uh, the swan, the Cygnus, which is just oh, yes. hanging there by itself, just like hovering on the sky. So that's a, a beautiful nice. start of the evening. Uh, yeah, do, do you like astronomy a lot as well or...? I, I do, uh, it, you know, uh, it's definitely, uh, I despise the idea of using the uh, mythologies uh, for constellations, but whatever, you know, <laughs> yeah. it makes it more confusing to me, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, as a side project, I'm doing some Greek mythology and it's kind of fun when you, when you attach the stories to it in a sense, but... Uh, I mean, I get it. It, it works, <laughs> and maybe I should appreciate it more. It, it's nice because I have been recently. If you look at it like a map, and instead of like actual entities or animals, and yeah. instead of like a map, and in the different constellations or like different countries, yeah, it makes a little more sense. But you know, like I, I definitely, I definitely know my way around the sky a little bit, but just the basics, you know. Yeah, like Orion, 
Oh yeah. Oh, that's, that's, that's that that might be my favorite. Yeah. yeah, and the sword, and then you can see the nebula in the sword. It, yeah, uh, and you got you got you got a bunch of major uh, uh, stars there. You have Be that's where Beetlejuice is. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's know. a massive one. It's a man. Yeah, the radius is fourteen hundred times the sun, which makes the yeah, volume like, like uh, yeah. A lot. It's ginormous. <laughs> <the> third. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's also just the last part of the constellation. There's something about connecting with ancient times for me that when you look up at that stuff, that's kind of what they they were looking at 2,000, 3,000 years ago. And that's kind of their orientation. There's, their, their worldview, in a sense, was also kind of informed by the heavens and the stars and then that, that whole. Uh, it was extremely important for sure. Yeah. Um, navigation for navigation and mythology and everything yeah, exactly yeah. yeah it's nice to know you have one star north star <laughs> always the same position for, for us at least <laughs> exactly so yeah, I, true. I, i've looked at how to do it in the southern hemisphere and it's really complicated <laughs> <laughs> yeah take a trip to australia one day and <laughs> relearn the whole uh, night sky um but i thought today we're gonna talk about like talk through your book uh for people who haven't read it and people who don't know that much about physics but they just they're interested and they know about the big bang is fascinated by by the origins of of the cosmos and uh, yeah and the different theories so um yeah i thought we we're going to spend 20 30 minutes on just walking through the main thesis of the book and then some of the parts kind of how you build up the argument so um maybe you can just start with the, the overall overall thesis the conclusion so the the overall thesis i guess the, the primary point is that the hubble redshift is not uh the interpretation that it's the uh the expanding universe the inter the doppler interpretation is what it's called so they look at the hubble redshift and think that galaxies and stars are spreading away from each other the idea that it's uh an expanding space or a uh, metric to me is it's a, it's a little too step it's a step too far in, in uh, the so I think that it, um, a better interpretation is gravitational redshift and the reason I think that is because that there's there's this confusion uh, uh, in physics about gravitational boundaries and see so, yeah, the idea of a, a gravitational boundary it's they're they're using arbitrary uh, locations. So if you if if you're talking about a uh, the the gravitational field of Earth, for mm -hmm. example, they draw the gravitational boundary of Earth at the surface of Earth, but in fact there's a an atmosphere on the other side of that boundary. There's a moon. There's a the sun. There's all this stuff in space surrounding Earth. So when they draw the gravitational boundary of Earth at the surface, you're only talking about the gravity of Earth at the surface. Mm. It's uh, the Earth is part of the whole universe, and gravity is a fundamental um, aspect of the universe. It's not a fundamental aspect of objects in the universe. So. Uh, because of this, an astronomer, let me, let me just, I've got a visual aid here. Mm -hmm. Cool. So this, <laughs> the, there's an ant on it. This is a star and this would be the earth. Mm 
-hmm. So this is the way that cosmologists would treat it. This is the gravitational boundary. They draw this and they say, when they're, when they're deciding gravitational redshift. And so the reason that I think that, that it's a gravitational redshift is responsible for the Hubble redshift. Now, it, for anybody that doesn't know real quickly, the Hubble redshift was um, discovered by Edwin Hubble in something like 1921. And that was a, it's what he discovered was that galaxies, the further away they are, or the more redshift there is. And so that's why they, uh, cosmologists think that there's an expanding universe. Well, I'm, I, I'm saying that that's, it's all caused by gravitational redshift. And that's because they're drawing these boundaries. So this, if the way they do it, they would say they would use the gravity of the, the star and the gravity of the earth. And they would say that this is the X amount of gravitational redshift. Mm -hmm. That's fine and dandy when there's no other objects around it. However, the universe has lots of other objects everywhere some of them are big and so if, if you look at this as a distant star and there's all these other objects what is the gravitational boundary that you use to decide how much gravitational redshift like i said before lambda cosmology or just mainstream idea of gravitational redshift they draw the boundary like this and they ignore all the other objects whereas all I'm saying is that when you're talking about gravitational redshift, you're talking about how space-time and gravity affect the light wave. And so you could have a light wave all the way from here and the gravitational boundary would be everything encompassing this area. Mm. If you did, if it was just a shorter one, then it would be everything encompassing that area because you wouldn't do like to decide the gravitational boundary you would not want to use for this say this observation say this star and this point the the star is more massive than the uh, uh the earth so we're we're looking out from the earth at uh, the all these other stars throughout the entire universe they're more massive than us. So there's definitely going to be a gravitational redshift. How much of a gravitational redshift is there going to be? The way you decide the amount of gravitational redshift is the distance of the light wave. That's the only way that you can, that's the only way that I can see that it, you can fully account for everything involved in the situation. If you just use the emitting star and the, mm -hmm. the point of observation, it's not enough. Mm. Yeah. Now, if, are, you, are you with me so far? Yeah, absolutely. And I did just, um, um, I was just reminded that I found you because I started searching for gravitational redshifts because I, I've been reading through all the books now lately about cosmology and then I read Einstein and he talks about the redshift of the gravitational redshift. And I hadn't even heard that mentioned in most of those other mainstream books. And then I thought, but this sounds like it has to have some play, some role in this. And especially since the further away, the more redshift, like they, how I, I got that same, just the, the intuition that this is a bit too much of a jump to say that this is, or to base the whole theory on this one premise. So, and um, so what you're saying there, I'm, I'm very interested in it because I was thinking, 
I would think there are gravitational effects everywhere in space. We don't of fully course. understand space or gravity. So, so it's likely that there are uh, uh, the one, a major component. One thing that I've found that uh, uh, gives me a lot of uh, uh, drive or, or, I mean, it keeps me going is that they continue publishing things about gravitation or galaxy clusters hmm. and how the amount of the sheer amount of gravitational redshift from a galaxy cluster can explain quite a few things. And hmm. so they, they, they talk about peculiar velocities. So anybody can just look at peculiar velocities. It's, it's just a term for an anomaly for the Lambda CDM cosmology. So Lambda CDM just stands for, the the term uh, lambda is represents what they is used for the cosmological constant in general relativity so it's just the the letter the greek letter then the cdm stands for cold dark matter mm -hmm. and there's also it's just a parameter set so it's a model of the universe for astronomers because what the, what they're doing is they're looking at the light that's coming from the star they know the frequency that's emitted or expected being what it is emitted and then they measure it and so there's all these anomalies in the lot uh, mm -hmm. you, you can decide certain things like you can decide from that you can determine the uh, rotational curve of a, of a galaxy say so the, the, the velocity of each individual star that's spinning or uh, you determine how far away it is you know so that that, that uh, that frequency of the light is very important, but the amount of gravitational redshift that they use, it, it's always insignificant for the, you know, for the sun. It's like, I don't know, I, like, I can't remember, but it's like 0.02% or something like that. Like it's mm -hmm. a very insignificant amount for the distance from the sun to the earth, you know? And the reason that I think that they have ignored this is because the, there was a, a recent paper uh, published either at the end of, of 2019 or something that uh, on gravitational coherence. And so they are large scale gravitational coherence on the cosmological level. And this was something that they haven't understood. They haven't actually, it was a surprise to them that there is some kind of large scale gravitational coherence. They, they were expecting everything like, galaxies and stuff to be disconnected because of the, the great distances but I don't I don't know why they would think this for some reason they think that there's I think it's because now they're expecting the metric to be expanding and so that the distances between galaxies they assume is much larger than what it actually is I'm not I'm, I'm not certain that that's one of the reasons that they've ignored it honestly I don't know why they've not looked at gravitational redshift like there's mm. very few there's a few authors that's talked about gravitational redshift and it's always brought up as a potential or a possibility especially when you're talking about galaxy clusters like mm -hmm. large or you know or super clusters they're larger scale things then gravitational redshift becomes more and more involved but for some reason they they, they stop at you know in the cluster region but it's it's the entire distance between the emitting star and the observation. You have to use that. There is, there's always go, every circle that you draw on the large, on the cosmological scale, you know, mm -hmm. on our scale, things are different because gravity is much more intense. Like the gravity of earth is much more intense than, you know, the average gravity throughout the, the universe. Mm. 
and so yeah i mean I, I really enjoyed like one of those examples you had like from like when the light comes from one inside in one filament and across giant amounts of space and into <laughs> into another filament where we are like the likelihood that something is affecting the light continuously when it travels like or even like just maybe the light when it leaves one filament it's like it comes out of water and it's just distorted totally like the, at least that <laughs> thinking about these things and this is this one thing that i was um, remembering that um, that's problematic to to maintain this um i don't know this this view on the redshift is the quasars when they are you have quasars connected to galaxies and they have different redshift just as one of those things that uh, kind of shows that there are many different uh, components of the redshift in itself uh it's just it might for somebody listening it might sound like kind of harping on this one little redshift thing but it is crucial because it's the sole premise of the whole expanding theory and it just it doesn't kind of feel right <laughs> so and that's so there's uh, at least it's something we should look into i think further but another i wondered like when you um if you calculate the, the gravitational redshift uh so one thing is explaining the um the distant galaxies but could it be used to to calculate other things like make predictions out of this model so well? yeah what I've done is I use the uh, critical density. Now, the critical density is what, the, you know, the, um, the density of the universe that it, uh, would collapse or not collapse. And, and so you're not actually, the critical density doesn't actually include expanding space. That would be an additional equation on top of that. But so the critical density at the observable universe, let's say. Now, I think that there's a gravitational redshift that depends on the amount of mass involved in a region. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, it's kind of a ridiculous, but it helps. Can you see that, Aron? Mm-hmm. That's good. Okay, so you can look at these as a galaxy. You can look at this as a galaxy. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can say that we're right here. This is the the earth now let me go ahead and say that uh, i'll just go ahead and point out where a mainstream physicist would disagree with me they would say that the gravity of the universe on the large scale equals it just it just kind of Mm -hmm. it's uh it affects the emitting body and the observing body the same Mm -hmm. so in other words why would you draw the circle this way on this side you could draw it on the other side as well you see what I'm saying? Yeah. However, that's bec- the reason is because this is the gravitational well that's created. It's emitted from a very low gravitational point and it's climbing out of the well. And so f- when it goes from here to here, as it's climbing out of the well, it's, it's got a different redshift than what we observe over here. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You, you can put the observer at different points and it's still the, the volume becomes smaller. It wouldn't be over here on this side because it doesn't know that it's not traveled yet. Is there any way of emulating that we are measuring the the light at, from a different position, <laughs> like from from uh, the Andromeda galaxy? Like, could could we yeah. somehow try to emulate that we're closer to a distant galaxy and see that the redshift is different? Uh, uh, Just throwing out ideas here. <laughs> yeah. See the. 
uh, to me, so I've used the, I'll go back. I got off for a second and I'll go, I'll go back to that. That's what makes it complicated is because say the Andromeda galaxy is approaching us. Yeah. And so there's some galaxies that, I mean, it's not a uniform uh, motion, but some ad, uh, galaxies are moving away from us. Some galaxies mm-hmm. are moving closer. So you would have to do a survey. You would have to do a survey of several galaxies and, then, and measure the redshift of each one. And they've already done this with the Hubble redshift. So it's what I was saying earlier. I take the, uh, the density of the observable universe and then find the redshift that would be for that. Okay. And that actually matches up with the prediction of the Hubble redshift. So it's like, that's where the, the observable, that's where the amount of redshift surpasses uh, the ability of the light to, to be seen from an observer from here at this point. So it's, you know, it's something like 13 billion light years away. Mm-hmm. Uh, something like 4,200 megaparsecs. Um, halfway between here and there, then it matches up just, just like Hubble's law at, at any point. So it's something like 74 kilometers per second per megaparsec is what I get. And that's using a gravitational acceleration of seven times 10 to the negative 10 meters per second squared. Mm-hmm. So the gravitational acceleration is uniform throughout the entire universe. Now that is a little more profound than what it what it sounds like. It means that the density is not uniform throughout the entire universe. The density depends on the amount of space that you choose. So if you choose, let's say something that's less than one megaparsec, one megaparsec is something like three million uh, meters, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so something less than that you choose a, a, a region of space it's, it may have one or, or uh, two galaxies in that region so that would be a very large or a very high density you choose a, a larger radius um, let's say something like a, a hundred megaparsecs there's going to be several galaxies in that that volume of space and so that means that the, the redshift is going to be higher for each scale. The density is different for each scale also. The density is inversely proportional to the radius, the chosen radius. Yeah. These boundaries are all arbitrary, so you have to choose a frame of reference when you're dealing with gravity. Any gravitational measurement or prediction that you do, you have to choose a frame of reference. So you have to choose a boundary. Now, astronomers and cosmologists have choosing the boundary as the star or the galaxy mm. when they should have been using the entire volume of space that the light is in. Mm. Mm. That's the only way that you can fully see. A f- that's the only way that you can fully account for the number of wavelengths in the total light wave. Okay, so a light wave that goes from this point to this point doesn't matter the distance there's going to be an, a number of crests in that length of light wave using general relativity how do you determine the impact to the number like so if you want to know the number of you can this is a calculation you can do you can find the number of wavelengths that's mm-hmm. in the total number of wavelengths or frequencies whatever i don't know what you call it <laughs> <laughs> In the entire length of light wave, you you can calculate this, and then you would have also the gravitational impact on what it should be. What, 
how much, what mass determines that? It would have to be everything encompassing that light wave. You can't, there's other things, not mm. just the emitting star. Mm. See, cosmologists ignore all those other things. Mm. They say that it equals out, but it, it doesn't equal out. I'll show you this example one more time. Yeah. It definitely does not equal out because in this example, so you have the star and the, the earth equaling out. You could just balance it out and draw another star right here. Yeah. That's not going to impact this observation. It's mm. going to impact this observation. It's just going to be more redshift that way mm. from, from that direction. See, it doesn't balance, it doesn't impact this. Just, uh, I was also wondering, so are most of the galaxies moving away from us according to like a theory of that is expanding like they're they're moving away from each other so yes they look like they all look like they're moving away from us but if we if you were somewhere else they would look like they were moving away from that point mm. so now I, i'm just going to sidestep them for one little second and that's why you have this thought that the, the center is nowhere the center is everywhere exactly but i'm still thinking like if it's <laughs> this, well, the center is the is the point of observation. But, When you're talking about the center of, of of a universe that requires a frame of reference, yeah. When you talk about the center of it, you're just talking about the center of that frame of reference. But, you're not. You, you can't but, really talk about the large scale universe like that. But I just wonder still, like if it's if it starts with a point, a little p, it's a golf ball, it's a melon. And then it keeps growing. When the universe is the size of a melon, it has the center. <laughs> if, if, <laughs> yeah, presumably, if it's if it's expanding, it would always have a center. Exactly. So, I, I, <laughs> so at what point? Or like a, you know, you could go back in time, and at what point can you see that there's? See, I, I, according to it's everywhere at the same time. Hmm. I don't like it. I, you know, it's not a. In my opinion, it what they're what they're describing is not physically possible, well, but, and so therefore it, there's this. It sounds like an argument. Circular that argument. Yeah, and that, well, you're describing a, a sort of infinity then. Like, well, this infinitely big then. If every if every point is the center, <laughs> then that's the definition of infinity, and then. <laughs> is it? I'm not sure if it's relevant, but it's kind of it's one of those things that doesn't add up in terms of. And I know then someday we'll say like, well, it's like the, the it's like a surface, and the, you can make metaphors that kind of everywhere on the surface is the top point of of like any like a ball. <laughs> any yes, point yeah. is kind of that would be the top of the ball according to where you stand and this and that. But it's like yeah, but. But you, if the claim is that it starts as a little point and then grows out as a little ball and stretches out, then yeah. Um, so yeah, I was just wondering about this: if it like if there's relative movement in addition to, to um, just to get a sense of this, like the galaxy, since since this is what we're basing it on. But 
But if it, the redshift is equal in every direction from the Earth, it's, it's yet another indication, I would say, that there's something about the distance. <laughs> Not a... <laughs> the distance is what, what causes it. Yeah. And, I mean, it's the, the amount of mass in it because, you know, a larger distance includes a larger amount of mass, in it, which includes a larger redshift. I mean, these are, these are simple equations. Now, what right. I was saying earlier about the gravitational acceleration of the universe, yeah. this is the part that I think is, it's, it's a lot more profound than it is on the surface. Mm-hmm. And I wish I was a smarter person. I could handle this. So the gravitational acceleration of the universe is a, it's a, it's uniform. So the gravitational acceleration of the earth is like 9.8 meters per second squared. So an object falling towards the surface of earth would, would accelerate at 9.8 meters per second squared. Um, the gra- if you do it for the entire universe, it's a uniform. In other words, all scales, all large scales, so anything, say, bigger than a few galaxies, from all those scales on upward, it's uniform, mm-hmm. which means the density is inversely proportional to the radius of, of whatever, whatever region you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And this is the cosmological constant, because if you do this, the, you don't need a cosmological constant. You can, uh, th- th- there's these formulas. So the reason you need, Einstein needed a cosmological constant was to, uh, uh, to balance out the universe, to keep it from collapsing. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, uh, the if, if you use a uniform uh, gravitational acceleration and an inverse density, then the universe won't collapse. You can do collapse time equation. And the collapse time gets large. <laughs> so the, the time that it takes for the universe to collapse from, from the force of gravity gets larger and larger depending on the radius that you choose. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, you know, you choose the observable universe, it'll be like something like 13 billion years is the collapse time. If you take, you know, twice that distance, it'll be like 26 billion years is the collapse time. And so that's why the universe doesn't collapse. It's because it's, I mean, to me, that mathematically works great, you know. Mm. Like, yeah, sure, there may be regions of the universe collapsed into something like a galaxy, you know, or a star. Uh, and the collapse time, you can use, you can just calculate that out for, the, for that region. Mm. <coughs> so, let's say, though, that there's, it's not a Doppler effect, it's not expanding. It, we can explain it with the gravitational effects and the gravitational redshift. Okay. Where do we go from there? <laughs> What's the implications from that? <laughs> How much false then? <laughs> unfortunately, the implications are pretty intense. Uh, it, there's a lot to take apart after that. You're, you're changing the entire paradigm. And so mm. the great thing is, is it perfectly, like it, it's it, the same amount, exact same amount as the Hubble redshift. You can, you can just assume this. Mm-hmm. And and then that'll give you the gravitational acceleration and the, the all the other parameters. So you just make the assumption uh-huh. and check it, and then then all of the standard Hubble shift is perfectly aligned. And then there's minor anomalies. So there's anomalies like from what you said, the quasars. There's mm-hmm. the supernova. You know, there's dark energy anomalies, dark matter anomalies. That you would want to to look into those regions to to determine if they would match 
with gravitational redshift or, you know, so those anomalies may be under a different paradigm, under the gravitational redshift paradigm, those anomalies might have a different meaning. Yeah, I was and thinking so it may just mean, they might be keys then to opening a wealth of new discovery and new physics yeah. and everything. I, I think this is probably the most interesting area to explore. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it's difficult because the data that they're using for these anomalies mm -hmm. is under the other paradigm. And so, you know, dissecting it, it's a little complicated. Yeah. Uh, uh, but have, I, have, I have looked into this a little bit. So with dark matter, there's something called MOND, which is just a theory for an explanation for dark matter. It's by a guy named, um, what is his name? Milgram, I think. Milton, uh, Milgram, I, I think is his name. I forget his first name. Um, but MOND stands for, it's M-O-N-D. It stands for Modified Newtonian Dynamics. And so it's what basically is what it comes down to is that he introduces this new fundamental constant. And so this would mean that there's this gravitational effect or some other modification to gravity. So it's, uh, it's basically, it's like a, a, a bottom level. Mm -hmm. So instead of you have asymptotic, which means uh, if you have a uh, asymptotic means approaching zero. So you have asymptotic flat sp space is what they call it. That would be the space in between galaxies. This is asymptotically flat. So it's approaching zero zero gravitational effects. Milgram suggested that it may not actually approach zero. It may reach a bottom level. Maybe let's say that it's from the universe or whatever. And so the number that he came up with, with is very close to what I'm suggesting. If you use the uniform gravitational acceleration for the whole universe. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that, that is encouraging because that it's what it works out to is that it's not, empty space in between galaxies there's dust you know and there's probably specks of dust that are the size of saturn everywhere hmm. you know it's, there's probably a significant amount of of mass in between uh galaxies you know it's not just the stars that we see there's you know there's lots of other mass hmm. that that and that's that's why there's that's why they assume that there's dark matter but the old fit like Everything, the Einstein physics with relativity, all of that would stand still. Like that's not. No, that's not under question yeah, exactly. at all, as far as I know from from anything credible that that I can say. But you know, yeah, everything should be within <laughs> within question. You know, yeah. I I still I just find this so fascinating because it's um um it's been on the back of my mind for about twenty years or so. Like what Einstein did, he just those two theories are based on just two very simple thought experiments. I mean, you can just sit at home and have a cup of coffee and just ponder the world a little bit. Like the whole general relativity, he just, it just occurred to him, that the way he described it, that he was just thinking, if a man is falling in free fall, he doesn't feel his own weight. And that was kind of the light bulb for him. And then like, oh, why doesn't that? Oh, because it's the gravitation and it creates a, a different. Um, it's, it's, it's like a, an elevator or. Yeah, a, exactly. So a, a rocket. Yeah. So, the, so the, it, it creates a counter gravitation. The fall creates a counter gravitation. which And it's accelerating too. Yes. That's what is very unique about gravity is that it's accelerating. It's not just velocity, you know, it's, mm. it's acceleration, which is. 
So I, I just yeah. wonder if, if one then starts pondering more about, well, let's say it's not expanding, it's stable in a sense. And then there's <laughs> just like so many things you can then start to just philosophize over, like, well, how would it add up in that case? Uh, I have no idea where that's going to lead us, but, but it's, uh, it's, it's part of the joy and the kind of the treasure hunt of physics and science is to just, well, I think a big, something we might learn from history is like, often it's not the math necessarily physics that like, that's uh, so complicated, but we just have to know where to look and then we start discovering. So it's that, uh, that's often the main issue is to, yeah, just step back and uh, have another look at things. The, uh, the, the whole question is, it's like, it's important, but it's also absurd and useless. But, you know, the, the idea, like to me, it gets at this, the, the, the question that we're all searching for is like, what is this? Like nobody knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. Everybody has their idea of what's going on, but they don't really. And so you got all these stars up here and apparently they're, balls of nuclear explosions, just unfathomable, you know, sizes, then to me, the whole thing is absurd, but it's, it's fun to ponder. And I think that there's, there's probably some limitations placed on people because they, the big bang for some reason makes it sound like it's a nice, neat package and that it just started. And this is where we came from, but it's missing something else. It's not, it's not uh, a satisfying answer to me and it shouldn't be a satisfying answer to anyone. Mm. And of course a cosmologist would say that they're just describing the large scale evolution of the universe. And it's not really supposed to be any deep philosophical, have any deep philosophical meaning. It's just an explanation. But to me, it goes a, a step too far to talk about, what happened billions of years ago because we don't really know no one knows anything that's yeah that's going on. and and just like small things on that with discovering stars that are 46 billion light years away when <laughs> when the universe is supposed to be 13.7 it's yeah there's like there's plenty of reason it's, it's yeah it's like and it's but i mean so this is something about cosmology i read somewhere that it's 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 been it's in some sense a pendulum between being mostly science and being mostly mythology, speculation, uh, religious speculation. And that's how it goes because it's just, we're trying to grasp something that is in many ways beyond us. <laughs> so we are. <laughs> My biggest critique is that, that they, they, uh, they want to operate in a, a very specific paradigm and they're discouraging others from operating outside of that paradigm. And mm. I think that that's a very bad move, especially when you're talking about something so complicated yeah. and, and large, you know, large mm. scale. I mean, yeah. I, one of the, one of the things that, uh, um, one of the things about that is, is so fascinating is that it gives you an, a sense of how insignificant we are as humans. Yeah. And, and so, and, and humility is like the, the only way to approach these ideas. And, you know, of course, it, it, debate isn't always humble, but, you know, whatever, but, that's fine. But there was this other thing I read there that if we think that since about 100 years ago, the scientists thought that the Milky Way was everything. <laughs> Our galaxy was all there was. The Andromeda was just a, um, like a nebula-ish thing in our own galaxy. 
that was a hundred years ago. And now we know that billions and billions and billions of galaxies. <laughs> and then we think that, oh, within a hundred years, we have sorted everything. It's just, in terms of scientific discovery, even, the thought that within just 100 years, we have sorted it all out, um, like in terms of scientific discovery, that is <laughs> the size of, of, of yeah. new stuff we, we kind of stumbled into. And then we think it just took 100 years. It's not likely. It's, again, like you said, humility, just keep it open that we might know of, like very little. And, and with, with, you know, like, I, I, of course, you know, I'm the guy preaching an alternate model to cosmology. So, of course, that's the way it's. And, and so, like, when I have approached other uh, people, I've usually just flat ignored. In, in fact, that's, it's like almost 100% have ignored me. I mean, there's been a, a handful of people that are open to this idea. That it's all gravitational. But, um, yeah, but I, I mean, I, I s- I saw, um, so you were one of the first videos that popped up when I searched. And another one was from Eric Lerner, uh, who was interesting. But then as the first impression, he's just sitting there with this really cool <laughs> big sweater and, <laughs> and a bit the nerdy professor hair and, uh, and talks about, he's starting to grade the Big Bang Theory and he just goes through point by point the amount of light materials, um, the age of of the universe and so on and just gets oh that's an f it's an f it's an f and he says like he says how he po- he points out how how much off like so this is about one hundred billion times off prediction <laughs> so we <we'll> call this <laughs> zero <laughs> so um, but then I saw he wrote a book about this thirty years ago and he's been he's been promoting his alternative stuff for thirty years and and, and you know he's done fairly uh, fairly good work he's yeah. published and you know it's not necessarily really related to cosmology but he's published hasn't he i'm i'm I'm, I'm mm. certain of it but you know there's there's been lots of people the um what was that guy's name I actually wrote him about him in the book i, I I'm just blanking on him right now but you know i mean he was a uh, very successful physicists mm. and you know he opposed the big bang all the way up until like the 70s and stuff you yeah. know so there's there's always been this little silent outside voice but i mean i get it they want to uh they want everybody on the same page when they're doing research so at least mm. you know it's it, but i still least, think that that um again the, the the upside of this and then i had some of the notes i was like what do we know about the, understand about the nature of gravity, the nature of space, for example? What is the space we've been touching uh-huh. briefly on? But like this thing between even just the moon and the earth, like what is, is it a substance? Is it nothing? What, what, what's, what's the nature or characteristic of like we don't, and if you stretch that, what does that mean even? Like do you, do you get more of it? I mean, this, that, that's a bit like the ether uh, in the old days. I thought sp- space was full of an ether because light has to have a medium to go through. Um, so, but some of these thoughts are still valid. I mean, if it's expanding, it's like, well, is it stretching? Is it becoming more of it uh, like at each point or is it growing at the edges? Like <laughs> all of these things are just like open questions. The expanding space it just makes it, just adds a, another layer of confusion to what is space. You know, space is just this, it's a concept. I mean, and it's, uh, it's, it's the weirdest thing ever. Like, nobody it knows what so- it is. Something like that within which you can have matter or something. Like, 
the, the way I look at it is that, you know, the, uh, the universe is matter. And so you, you have different densities of matter. It, it all, you know, that's, it's clumpy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, that, that the space is, is what you would find as the space between the clumps. Um, and, uh, but the, the space is like a static thing and it really has not much of a, a meaning until you add gravity into it. And then, you know, the space actually brings on, takes on a little more sense because the, there's a natural motion to the objects. So mm-hmm. it, all, if, so you can have space and then all the objects in it. And so long as they're not moving, then they just stay still. And the once, you know, Mm. in the exact arrangement that they were, but then you add gravity to it. And so you have a sort of an evolution taking place, you know, it's, yeah. and so I view space as space is gravity. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Two aspects and of time. the same thing. Yeah. Also, and, and it's also time because like mm. I said, you know, if you didn't have gravity, then the objects wouldn't be moving. They would mm. just be. Yeah. I'm, I'm really fond of um, this Aristotelian way of like time is the measure stick of change. So gravity is the measuring stick of change. Like you yeah. can use them all interchangeably. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there There's go. even this concept in, in geometry. There's this concept, or I guess it's topology is the, the, the field, but it, there's this concept of uh, the Ricci flow, I think yeah. is how you say it, or the Ritzy flow. And so it's what this is. It's uh, some of, you know, sometimes people call it to the flow of time. Hmm. And it just it smooths out irregularities in whatever object you have Mm. and so this is the thing that 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 Perlman Gregory Perlman discovered I don't know a decade ago the Poincare conjecture which is this thing from Henry Poincare from the turn of the century was this question about shapes Mm -hmm. and so you have all these qualifying shapes and it it was just this uh, conjecture that he, he proposed and nobody had been able to solve it but Gregory Perlman just submitted the uh a paper to the archive uh, archive.org and like it just perfectly solved it and everybody was like oh and it turns out that Hamilton I, for, I forget his first name I, I only remember people by their last names which is whatever <laughs> but anyways Hamilton pretty had pretty much already solved this the point care conjecture when he was working on on his stuff and so Gregor Perlman was kind of mad for some reason because they you know physics hadn't or, or math or on the all these different fields had, had been able to solve this, but really already solved it and nobody had recognized it. And for some reason he, he acted like he was mad and I don't know what his reasons were, but he did not take the, the he won the Fields medal, the Fields prize, but mm-hmm. he, he, he refused it. But it was this idea and he used Ricky flow and or, or this idea of Ricky flow with surgery to show that this uh, basically a torus is the same as a, a or is homeomorphic to a, a three sphere is what yeah. it's okay yeah is what it is mm. and so and, and, and like i say that ricky flow is you know sometimes referred to as of time and it smooths out irregularities so it can make a torus into a sphere mm. um this is interesting and um, so that that it that is time. It's gravity, and that to me, that's you know, that kind of packages everything all up. But whether yeah. or not people recognize that is the the, the the three sphere is something. That's a good topic. I just uh, 
one tiny thing about time, just like a uh, reflection on this, is like uh, just to remember that since uh, or <laughs> what do you think is big time scales? It, it's like time scales doesn't really exist apart from how we experience it. Then, like it's not like if the change is fast or slow doesn't actually mean anything <laughs> like it's know, changed yeah. and then you put it a measure stick but how it's like if one billion years is much or little it's just it's uh it's just an especially when you're talking happens about, yeah especially when you're talking about long periods like what you just mentioned billions you know yeah, when, yeah. You, when you start talking about that then you know a second a day a year all of that stuff is mm. i guess there's know. something about the amount of change is is uh, I'm a bit hung up on this as well, like the, the amount of change. <laughs> yeah, this is I'm not going to repeat that stuff, but it's like um, that might be something that has a, a starting point for for speculation again, uh, and also for another time. Like we're getting close to an hour now, but like the three spheres, uh, maybe for another talk, I'd like love to talk more about that because that's that's kind of the ending point of of Einstein's book when he talks about this overall structure of the universe of the cosmos. He talks mm -hmm. about this four-dimensional ball and then that's why if you go one direction you will end up in the same point eventually I mean, because it's like this it's like a, a surface on a ball you can travel forever and then just imagine that the surface is a three-dimensional surface on a ball and that's how the universe is just I, I don't know how much he worked on that like if that was just an idea he had at the time but I mean I, he, he he abandoned that eventually because of uh, uh, expanding space, you yeah, know, that, yeah. that was the, the direction that went. So it wasn't something that, that mm. he continued down, which is, you know, to me is very unfortunate, but I, I think three sphere is, is the most likely description of, of, of a shape, you yeah. know, uh, and, and see uh, if I was better was at math, I would try to give a three sphere, a gravitational acceleration, a uniform mm -hmm. gravitational acceleration. You know, you could do that maybe with topology or something. And I think that that would be, you know, the, the way to prove what I'm saying, yeah. or at least, at least, you know, maybe on, on route to a proof. Hmm. Yeah. I'm super interested in that as well. Um, I just thought the last, let's say, trying to wrap it up a little bit here now. Um, so where where do we go from here? Like with um, with the gravitational redshift, since that's kind of the starting point and, and the main the main thesis of the book. Like, is it can it be proven? Like, would there be calculation done that that could kind of prove this? And is it a like or for people listening, like if they want to get into this and and uh, do their own research or trying to <laughs> to philosophize further, like. Where, where do we go from here do you think i think the you know the, the the best way is to if there is a solution to all of the anomalies mm -hmm. in lambda cosmology you know the dark matter the dark energy the uh, even the the cosmic microwave background radiation um uh for, like if if you can come up with ways of showing that those are all caused by a single thing instead of all these other different ideas like oh there's all this mass we didn't know about you know oh it's 70 yeah. percent of the universe you know <laughs> and we had no idea that it existed mm. you know that's that's the idea of dark matter so if you can come up with another proposal that that solves that problem and it solves the problem of dark energy which i think that there's 
they could be caused by two different th- two different things, but there's some there's there should be some sort of connection between the two. Mm. And as with other anomalies, and I think that that's probably the the best areas to explore for you know those anomalies are the the are the key to everything basically. Mm. Are um so the dark matter was that to just to fill in that little part was is that a part of expanding space or is it to make the the the, the rotation of the galaxy add up it's so it's it's an additional exactly it's it's, it's an additional uh, uh anomaly on top of expanding space so you got the expanding space idea but then they found some galaxies it was vera rubin she died um not long ago but um anyway she was a, a an astrophysicist and she or an astronomer. I don't even know what the difference is these days, but <laughs> she found an anomalous rotational curve in spiral galaxies. So the, uh, in other words that uh, the, the, you expect the stars on the outside of galaxies to spin at a slower rate than the stars on the interior of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. And so you've got this curve that it, that it creates. And she found that the curve was not there really like it, it, w- it worked for just a second and then it flattened out. Mm. And and so that, that meant that the stars on the outside of the galaxy were traveling at the same velocity around in a circle as the, the ones towards the interior. And this didn't make much sense. And so the the idea was suggested that there's that there's a whole bunch of more mass because if you just add more mass to the equation, then it works. And so but it takes seventy <laughs> percent of the mass you know, it would mean that dark matter makes up 70% of the universe. So that, that's, it's the, it is caused by mass, but it's because there's gravitational coherence with all things, Mm. with all the universe. And so when you're looking at a galaxy and you're finding the rotational curve, you know, the, the, all the galaxies surrounding it play a role in the rotational curve of that galaxy as well. Mm. And, I think that Milgram, that with with that modified Newtonian dynamics with Mond, I think that that's actually he has the best explanation. It's just that no one wants to say that there's gravitational coherence on the large scale for some reason. I don't, and to me, I, I always thought that this was what Mach's principle was. You know, that there's everything is connected, everything in the universe is connected, and so it's it's baffling that this is not the direction that they've taken. And I think it's because they're using the metric as this very foundational element and so you know they're i don't i don't know it's, yeah but it just strikes me again when you're describing it like that this that we don't know what we're looking at often when we look into the universe we can't assume that every part of the universe is similar to our little corner of the universe either mm-hmm. but that it seems to me that's that's a kind of a presumption that's being made and um yeah we have lots to learn about the nature of of what we're seeing and we're also we're projecting our own categories and our own i mean how, how we've been shaped to run around in the forest and and, and <laughs> gather food and and <laughs> survive in the jungle so it's like we we can't exactly. do that and, it, and I, it, it also strikes me like this image and like it's a bit like coming to a new continent like it's a vast vast continent to explore and we are just at, <laughs> at the edge of it trying to get a little bit of we're just 
Yeah, no, included <laughs> way too early. <laughs> I mean, just think about it. You, we can only see the galaxies in a, or the the stars in our own galaxy. We can't really even see. I mean, I think you can you see Andromeda with the naked eye. I think you can. You can see it, it so looks- as a very kind of if you know it's there on a very clear clear night. You see it as a smudged smudged little white spot. Yeah, maybe out in New Mexico or <laughs> yeah. <know> somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Utah, you can see it perfectly. Mm. Um, but uh, uh, it's still, there, there's there's all these stars everywhere. We're just surrounded by stars in our own galaxy. And then, you know, we're looking at galaxies that are outside of that. Yeah. And they're really far away, absurd yeah. distances. And that data is is interesting and valuable, but it's... Uh, the ideas about the data are not as interesting and valuable. You yeah. almost have to create your own ideas of, about what this, what it means. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a great article and it's by a name. What is his name? Um, Greg. I forget his last name. Anyways, it's called 21 Questionable Assumptions in Physics is, mm. is the title of the, the article. And it's, it's one of my favorite articles ever published. It talks about um, one of the, the assumptions is that light is a thing that travels from point A to point B. Yeah. This is uh, an, an yeah. assumption. Yeah. You know, like it's not really an object that travels from point A to point B. It's this reference frame uh, that, that we're viewing. In, in some sense, yeah, that already came in high school physics when, when there was the mystery of light. Is it, is it a, a wave or is it particles? And uh, already yeah. at that point, I was thinking, well, particles are things that we see. Waves are water. Like we are just imposing again our own categories on things exactly. that, <laughs> and scales that might not, it might not be the, relevant at all. Like what like, I, I, I think the entire idea of a particle should be trashed. I think yeah. that there are no particles. Particles are what we use to talk about the waves. Mm. It's just, it makes it easier for us to quantify uh, th- the universe into things that we can do equations about. But really, the universe is just one, yeah. you know, and then everything is part of it. That's, if you ask me, this is, that, that is the unification of gravity with quantum mechanics yeah. is that, they're trying to use gravity on a micro level and say that it's, it's individual pieces of gravity, say, or, or, or of, of objects when really those, there's not individual pieces. It's just part of the whole. Mm. You have to include the entire mm. a stretch of the universe. I really and like that. <laughs> and so the, the, the gravity, I mean, Gravity is all, uh, it's all one gravitational field and you can talk about parts of the gravitational field, but you can't talk about the individual pieces of gravity because that is not something, you know, there's only one piece of gravity. I I love it. Maybe mostly because I think it's the right way of thinking. It's this unifying way. It's It's a different way of approaching also science in a way. And I think it's the right way to discover new things. And yeah, to make more sense of it. And uh, yeah. Um, so I was just thinking like this, for this <laughs> episode, I was just thinking that having this as a starting point, a little introduction 
to all these themes, just putting it out, like laying out some of it. And there's lots more to talk about. Um, but I think this is enough for uh, kind of to get started and for our listeners to have something to, to think about and ponder. Um, it also, it's, it is a joy to just engage in this question and like, what is this? Like, what is the world? What are we seeing here? What is mm -hmm. the universe? And think the big thoughts. And uh, um, yeah, you have any last words? Uh, no, I really enjoyed this. Thank you yeah. for, for. Oh yes, for oh, it's a big. I need the first guest on the show, so that's uh, also an awesome. honor. Let's be a symbolic start of kind of exploring new things, uh -huh. and um, yeah, and hope to have you back sometime soon, and just keep keep doing this conversation. Also, for listeners, you can send in um, voice messages if you want to, and uh, also contact us, and then if you have any questions, and um, yeah, I think we're going to wrap it here. Um, so said everybody thank you so much for listening thanks to you chris for being here thank and, you uh, see you all again next time bye-bye now is the best time to start working at amazon they are offering sign-on bonuses up to three thousand dollars and hourly pay up to 22 dollars per hour you'll bring home a great weekly paycheck and many jobs come with benefits that start on your first day that's higher pay sign-on bonuses benefits day one and you'll be part of a safe and inclusive workplace ranked among the best in the world. Go to amazon.com apply to start your job search today. Amazon is proud to be an equal opportunity employer. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now, but I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.